No, I so I I have I have I have eight of the powered USB hard drives, their own hubs, and they're, they're fine. They'll fucking I can run yeah. those for a month in a row. It's it's I have these little waterproof, fireproof ones, and then I have my fireproof safe. Once a week, I offload them all onto a couple of these, toss them in there, and uh, they're fu- even just one of those is fine. What happens is when I get greedy and I'm like, let's plug them all in. Because instead of waiting for two hours and then switching them out, I like to put them all in and then go do other errands and shit. Yeah. And like an idiot, when I do that, I come back and the computer started over. And I'm always like, what, what the <laughs> fuck? And it's such, it's such a yeah. If they're if they're powered if they're powered from the USB port, then uh, the having a US a powered USB hub that has its own power supply separate from your computer fixes that yeah. because your computer is going to be like right at the limit yeah. for, you know, trying to power all the, cause, cause a hard drive is right. Even, even the new ones that, uh, they're right at the limit of what a normal USB port can provide. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you put four of them in there at once. Yeah. Your computer's yeah. power supply is going, oh. yeah, 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 no, it is. Yeah. Cause it's, yeah, it's, it, it's such a small amount, but at the same time, your computer's not meant to do that. You can, it's just not, mm-hmm. you're asking too much of it. Um, speaking of, of fireproof, I was finishing up an episode on Wednesday, I think, and a uh, fire alarm went off. And uh, <laughs> I was like, cause I've only ever had my fire alarm go off once. And it just so happened to be like a week ago. I never ever use like my oven or stove or whatever. And I think I decided to like cook, like cook something. First time I've ever cooked anything here, a fire alarm goes off. And I was like, well, that's the first and the last time I'm sticking a microwave. And the, but so the fire alarm went off like towards the end of the podcast. And I thought it was just me. And I stepped outside and everyone was coming outside. And I was, so I came back in and I was like, hey, I think, you know, my apartment complex might be on fire. I have to go. And uh, however, it just like I had like the fireproof safe, but I got like a heavy duty fireproof safe like a month ago. It, not even maybe two weeks ago. And like it's I mean, it's retarded. It's like 700 pounds is <laughs> like six inches of steel. It's rated to withstand like two hours at 1900 degrees Fahrenheit. And it's retarded. Yeah. But I remember always thinking I'd rather have this and just be able to walk out of my apartment or home and just be like all yeah. 650 episodes are safe. You can come back to the smoldering pile of rubble and that safe will be on the ground floor. Yes, yes. <laughs> with your stuff in it. Oh dude, it was it's delivered fine. on like a, it was delivered on like a flatbed. I had to pay two guys to move into my apartment. It's retarded. And um <laughs> but so as the fire alarm was going off, I remember I walked outside and saw it and I was like, who's the idiot now? <laughs> Smacked it and walked outside. Just free of all concern. I was like, you know, forgetting that there are other people in this apartment complex with babies and stuff. But I'm waltzing on out there just thinking like this motherfucking burn to the ground. I don't give a shit. I've got a I've got I've got a half ton of steel in my living room. But uh so that was kind of a a nice uh, mm-hmm. complete eradication of any buyer's remorse. <laughs> I just walked out and I was like, saw that chrome plated. Mu- and the thing is, is it's just big enough, Roger, that the old Century safe can fit inside of it. So there is, there's two hours. You at, believe in layers, don't you? There's <laughs> two hours of eighteen hundred and fifty degree steel, and then there's one hour at seven hundred seventeen hundred degrees of the Century safe. And so I'd literally, I do the turn code thingy. And I open the big one up and then there's just, you open it up and there's just another safe inside and you go beep, 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 beep. And then that one opens up 
and that's where I have these hard drives. So I was just, I walked out. I I almost wanted the apartment complex to burn down. Part of me was like, let's let's put this thing. And then immediately remembering, I'm like, there's like ten times as much valuables in my bedroom that are not fireproof. And so, but I walked out of there. And the just, other tenants, yeah, yeah, and the babies and the dogs. But I walked out just thinking, I was like, saw fire trucks coming, and I was like. It's not fucking burn. Like let's <laughs> let's see this thing. Let's see this thing. But um, turns out there was no fire. It was just some kid ran and pulled an alarm. So fuck that kid. So, yeah, it's funny. Funny. It's, you know, we we realized about three months ago that uh, we've lived in this house for thirty years and we had never changed the fire uh, the the smoke detectors, and we we're like, um, maybe we should get some new smoke detectors just like on general principles because they're like probably not even radioactive anymore and uh so i had to install those a couple of months ago uh incidentally on wednesday the same day that i found out that my dad uh had flunked his nuclear stress test and needed a angiogram uh i was interviewed by another videographer uh local new orleans guy he came to my house with a very professional video setup actually he uses an icon dslr he had a lapel clip with a radio transmitter yeah. um, and uh, and one of those barn door lights to illuminate my face yeah. on a stand and everything. Um, he does uh, – he, he referred several times to his uh, useless film education. He actually studied film in college. Uh, and his channel is successful on YouTube. He's actually making enough off of his monetized YouTube channel to pay the rent. Really? So he, he has a lot of followers. Hell yeah. Most of his episodes are about American history, and he has like uh, he he does he's really skilled at editing. He has a se- little series that he's done where he plays both characters in a back and forth conversation between a Union soldier and a, and a Confederate soldier, bantering about various aspects of the Civil War, and. He, the way that he does it is seamless. It looks like two different people with different personalities and the conversation flows naturally. So it's like he's also a pretty damn good actor, I guess. Uh, but he emailed me a la- uh, week before last and said, uh, you know, he, he had just discovered Prime Intellect and couldn't stop thinking about it. And he, he's, you know, am I still in New Orleans? And could he uh, maybe interview me about it? He said he does every once in a while, he departs from his main topic and does like a video book report. He, uh, he linked to me, uh, uh, a review he did of Dracula and it was about an hour long. And he went through a lot of the influences and the things that came after, but of course he didn't have Bram Stoker to interview for his, uh, book report about Dracula. So, uh, I'm very interested to see what he does with that. That's because, fucking uh, awesome, man. His his stuff involves a lot of post, uh, and uh, I'll I'll be sure to send you a link when that goes up so that you can see what happened with it. Please do. Um, it's uh, but uh, but I also told him about you and your travise with YouTube, and uh, and he agreed that yeah, it's very creepy, particularly since he's depending on it now for so much of his income. Uh, the way YouTube has been acting for the last year or so. Uh, he said one of his colleagues, who also has a very popular channel, uh, proactively demonetized himself. Yeah. He just yeah. walked off. And uh, I was like, well, oh, you know, Tommy wasn't even monetized yet. And they just freaking deleted all of his stuff, including all of the stuff I recorded with him, which pissed me the hell off. Yeah. Um, but he, uh, yeah, he uh, sympathizes with you on your... <laughs> 
little problem with YouTube there. Yeah, man. It's a, uh, you know, I obviously that was never my problem because, you know, not even preemptively demonetizing myself. I did such a big brain move. I just never got monetized by them. But uh, yeah, man, it sucks because there are a lot of people out there who not even because they're choosing to, but just because the content they put out. They, they don't touch anything. They're just like, I'm just, a, I, I'm an artist. I just do it. But now some of them are like, wait, have I done yeah. something? Have I, in one of my comedy clips, did I say something about something? Like they're, yeah, man, it's, it's, but as I've said from the get go, and as you always say, it's a private company that's free to do what they want and they're free to shoot themselves in the foot. Yeah, it's which just, they appear to be in the process of doing, even if very slowly, but it's, it's you know, yeah. they're alienating their own content pro- uh, producers. So, it's, uh, yeah, man, it, it's it's no good. I mean, removing the dislike button, that affected more people. Because before, it's like you can't talk about the election, you can't talk about COVID, and a lot of people are like, well, I don't give, you know, there's whatever. I just like that guy. I just put yeah. out videos. Mm-hmm. But now... That is a huge thing. That's a huge thing for tutorials. That's a huge thing is you never go to because there are clickbait tutorials and then you go look at them, you see 9000 dislikes. You go, oh, this guy is just, you know, hawking his podcast and not giving you a review of the new PS5 or something. But now you don't have that. So, yeah, it's uh, it's fascinating. For, but for everybody listening, Roger Williams, author of my favorite book, The Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect, because it's the. Christmas season, I will forgo threatening all of you to buy it. And but you know, once the Christmas cheer is out of here, I'm right back to verbal and actionable threats that if you don't buy this book, the, the dog is safe for two more weeks. Dog, right? Dog is safe. Says December twelfth. You got nineteen more days to get your act together. Twenty twenty two. I'm coming for you. But also, the podcast is two years old today, so that's kind of cool. But uh. Yeah. Getting booted from YouTube, apartment, fire alarm going off. That <laughs> is the purpose of the redundancies so that the podcast will survive in all of its glory. But, um, yeah, aside from that, man, I'm, uh, let's fucking get into it. Hey, uh, you want to do some curators reading? Absolutely, I do. Because I've been like waiting since I know, you know, I know. I'm for like a month and a half to I do know, this. I, I'm very, I'm very aware, and I we can't even you know talk about it. But my whole scheming plan didn't work. It might have a chance of it working again. That's again, if it ever pans out, I will discuss it on the podcast. But for right now, it's just going to be cryptic half sentences to Roger. But no, my yeah, it didn't pan out. Not through the fault of anyone. It just didn't pan out but it might pan out next month. Um, yeah, but, you know... Like, I, you haven't gotten any damn good guests ever before. I mean, it's like, you know... I, I will say that <laughs> I have had on two Rogan guests, Howard Bloom and uh, Lindsay Fitzharris. And, okay, I didn't know you had another one. I knew about Bloom. Yeah, Lindsay Fitzharris, she wrote the book The Butchering Art, all about Victorian medicine. Um, okay, yeah, I saw that. I didn't realize she was a Rogan guest. Yeah, yeah, she went on Rogan. I remember when I first found that out like a year ago, I was like, well, fuck, I'm never going to get her because I was like, her book is awesome. <laughs> but um, uh, it, it's not up yet, but I can now say it because he's publicly said it. But Dr. McCullough, who's been on this, was actually responsible for me getting booted, uh, went on Rogan on Wednesday, and it's not out yet. But um. So you had him first, and then Rogan got it. Well, I was thinking I've had three Rogan guests, and uh, a girl I'm friends with said 
correction, you've had two Rogan guests and Rogan has had one Tommy guest. And not that <laughs> not that any of these people are subject to ownership by me or Joe Rogan. They're all listening to this like, I'm not Rogan's guest. My name's Howard. <laughs> I'm not Tommy's guest. I'm an established doctor. What are you? I'm sit, just sitting here just panning them off like Pokemon cards. Like, I'll trade you a Rogan for a Tommy. And it's like, these aren't, no, these are adult, these are professionals who threw out of the kindness of their heart, gave you an hour of their day. And now I'm like, yeah, I've got a Rogan. I'll trade you a Charlie Duke. And it's like, what, what are you, you psycho? Stick to the safe within a safe in your own little delusional psychopathy. Jesus. Hey, I'm going to move my windows around here. Oh, you're a window. Roger, I'm going to go pee real quick just to uh, preemptively. Well, probably That's probably a again. good idea. Yeah, I'll probably I'll, pee uh, again later. I don't give a shit. I don't I'll, care. Uh, I'll give the book spiel. Good. Lulu. Yes. yes. Uh, if anybody would like a copy of my book printed on paper, uh, then uh, I encourage you to get it uh, instead of going to Amazon, which is obviously the most easy thing. Uh, if you see me looking over here, that's where I have the Zoom window now. Um yeah, but uh, consider going to lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com. Uh, they are the publisher of Origin, and for various contract reasons, the price will be the same. Now, uh, Lulu has very good customer service. They're a nice company to deal with. Uh, but the thing is, <coughs> excuse me, if you uh, buy from them, uh, they have to charge you the same price that Amazon does. They can't undersell the other uh, people in the chain, but they give me the money that they would normally give Amazon. So that's kind of nice. Uh, on the other hand, if, if I understand if you've got Amazon gift cards or credit or prime or something like that, uh, I don't begrudge it. I still get most of my income from Amazon simply because there are so many more sales through that channel. So, uh, that's, that's this, uh, the speech about getting mopey. So, um, now we'll wait for Tommy to return. I don't hear you talking, Roger. I just gave my spiel. I just, I, I literally just said, and now we'll wait for Tommy to return. You know what? I don't want to hear those excuses. That's what I don't want. <laughs> That's what it sounds like to me. Well, you can't kill my dog because I don't have one. Yeah, well, maybe you'll be getting one for Christmas. <laughs> Well, there would be no purpose. I'm going to give you this dog so I can threaten to kill it if you don't buy my book. It, can, it wouldn't make it – would, it, it, it doesn't make sense because there's no – why would I threaten you? You're the creator of the book. It's, yeah. I mean I have a copy. Yeah. No, no. You, you have a copy. So that's the thing. It's, <laughs> it's uh, But um, I keep feeling like that I meant to say something and I can't think of it. I'm just – I'm trying to recap my weekend. I feel like there was something in there I meant to – Maybe it's just I've been playing a zombie video game a lot, and maybe I think <laughs> that there's something valuable in there that there's actually not anything valuable about it at all. It might just be that. I just might have been that I yeah. played a zombie. Oh, yeah, no, my, my good camera. That's not important at all. It was just I, nothing I have to say is important. These are just stupid. <laughs> this is the first podcast after a two-day weekend, which for me is a long weekend, and now my brain's kind of cooked. So, Roger, okay, let's jump into the readings. All right, so uh, when we last met our heroes, uh, you'll recall uh, they had gone back to the witnesses who made them immortal and had met Q, 
the character that nearly annihilated the witness's home world by accident because they were rather careless with the unlocked downfall to drive. And uh, M was extremely unthrilled to be meeting Hugh again. But uh, that was uh, where we left things back in the 19th century when we had our last reading over the steampunk tech. Uh, so this will be uh, episode 38 as it was originally published on Reddit. And I believe this is eight for you uh, in your uh, curation of the curators. Mm -hmm. So this one begins eight years later. A time jump. Promethean Uplift Project plus 34 years. One of the artifacts I brought back with me in my shipping container of Earth Tech was a Cosmac Super Elf single board computer kit built in the 1970s. M had suggested that a sim simple computer might inspire the Prometheans where more complex, harder to duplicate devices would just discourage them. And once they were making their bulky and awkward integrated circuits, they quickly figured out how to make a computer that did the same thing that the Super Elf's RCA-1802 microprocessor did. Promethean semiconductor technology didn't naturally lend itself to high speed or density, but 30 years later, they were making 1802 clones that ran at 100 megahertz and with a new 16-bit architecture that cleanly ran older 8-bit programs, M had tried to suggest that other architectures could be more useful, but the Prometheans had never had Alan Turing to tell them that all such machines are basically the same, and they were reluctant to make a large body of existing work obsolete by changing the platform on which it ran. We were invited to inspect a prototype of what they thought might be a practical Starship data system. M, who had written more than a little software back in the day, took a keen interest and spent hours discussing the operation of the new 32-bit 1802 clone with its developers. The computer had a gas-discharge backlit graphical LCD display, and while it was monochrome and the pixels were easily visible, there were a lot of pixels because it was almost two meters across. It was actually made of tiled modules about 10 centimeters square, so it could be made arbitrarily large. They demonstrated maps being updated in real time as we flew over a virtual landscape, and it was clear they were quite proud of themselves. <laughs> After three days of evaluation and two more spent crunching numbers furiously in private, M announced that it would work. I hate to admit it, but this thing can do what they need. What do you wish they had done differently? She put down her pencil and leaned back. Almost everything, she said. It's an awkward mess and not really amenable to string handling and therefore advanced compiler design, which would make everything a lot easier going forward. She sat up, but it will work. I have to give them that. They will do 10 hours of work for every hour we did coming up with software for it, but I suspect what they end up with will be a lot more thoroughly vetted and reliable than ours. That sounds like a feature, not a bug. She snorted. You might be right about that. The Prometheans won't be listening to music or watching videos on their computers, but human computers were a lot more reliable when we weren't doing those things either. The computer was a surprise, but a bigger surprise was why the Prometheans felt they needed it. On the advice of the computer people, we visited another electronics lab. We've been working on the next level of fold technology after levitation and gravity plates, those don't require focusing and just harvest gravitons across a local probability field. 
The next step would be something that focuses, but is also limited to some form of radiation. The two main candidates are your supergravity drive and the microfold, which is used for galactic communication. But you have a microfold terminal. You've been using it for tens of thousands of years to reassure the curators that you're okay. And we would like to melt it into slag. But the only way we can safely do that is if we have something to replace it with of our own making. And that requires us to be able to engage the galactic message transfer protocol. That doesn't require what you would consider a high level of computer power. After all, most of the curated do it with nanite-based computers, which we understand are liquefied garbage compared to yours. But our older designs still weren't up to the task. This new 32-bit version is. You'll still need the software, M said skeptically. We've been working on that by recording traffic and decoding at an artificially slowed time on a 16-bit machine. We obviously can't respond with our own messages, but we can write and test the code which extracts messages and identifies our response slot. Now that we have the 32-bit machine, we think we can be on the network within our, with our own hardware in a couple of months. It actually took them three months, but we soon found ourselves traveling to observe the ceremony as the Prometheans melted their hated nanite-based galactic nanny. Traffic on the network had largely been congratulatory as they announced their presence to the general galactic population for the first time. We joined the leader of the microfold lab to watch the ceremony. I didn't think there was any way you could get the software working so quickly, M said, as we watched the nanite microfold transceiver start to melt. The lab director said, behold the power of fourth. The fourth what? I said. Not fourth the sequence, fourth the computer language. It's compact, fast on hardware, designed with it in mind. It's the reason our new machine has multiple hardware stacks. And interactive, so it facilitates very rapid design and accurate incrementally tested coding. The galactic terminal software was mostly complete before we took delivery of the 32-bit prototype and connected it to our experimental microfold interface. I've seen a couple of fourth projects, Em said. We call it write-only software because you can't look at a program and figure out what it does. But you usually don't have to. The computer does, and it turns out the computer is very good at that. So some being with access to Earth technology must have introduced you to this concept. There's actually a chapter on threaded interpretive languages in one of the computer books you brought here in your shipping container. It contains a summary of the core fourth primitives and a practical example of an inner interpreter. We figured out long ago that it would be our fastest and easiest path beyond machine language. It was designed when your own computers were much more primitive to make maximum use of limited hardware. Huh, what have we done, M said. You've opened another gateway for us on a path that leads out into the galaxy. I described that in the comments as the Nerdgasm episode. Also, I have a Cosmac Super Elf computer mounted on the wall in a picture frame up here right behind the computer I'm using here. Fuck yeah. <laughs> I do that a lot. Okay, part 39. Begin article for immediate release via microfold relay. Scope. All Galaxy, Section Galactic Mysteries, Origin, Norma, R1843, Curator, Index, 829166. 
Translation note, names with no recorded Earth equivalents are given Greek placeholders according to current Earth CI 1742660 directive. Title, An Old Voice Finally Has Something to Say. Byline, Alpha. 70,000 years ago, the curators quietly inserted a new world into their index in the thick of the Norma Galacticon. It was removed from the quarantine list and, as is usual, began to show up in the microfold transaction relay, acknowledging that there was a working microfold transceiver there and that it had an operator. And for 70,000 years, that's all it ever did. I actually traveled to an archivist world that keeps the best records, to be sure, and did an electronic search. All CI-829166 has ever had to say to the rest of the galaxy is ACK. Yes, we are here. But they have never asked for any further discourse with the rest of us. At least until last month. In a galaxy with more than a million inhabited worlds, there are going to be some oddballs, but few have made themselves as enduringly mysterious as CI-829166. Five old ships have investigated, all finding from orbit evidence of a primitive society with no obvious infrastructure and no means of providing orbital transfer support. Until recently, that also meant no way to land and investigate. So to this day, we have no idea what the inhabitants of CI-829166 look like or why they have maintained their generational silence so completely. One hint might come from their first message. In the comment field of the transfer protocol, which they had never used before, they placed the message, we made this ourselves without using nanites. There was also, for the first time, a content request packet asking for an up-to-date and complete introduction to the most current version of the galactic common language. Needless to say, that reply was transmitted on the very next cycle. It also directed everyone's attention toward another world, Earth, CI-1742660, which burst onto the galactic stage within the last century with their own non-nanite-based technology implementing tiny starships and powerful energy weapons, all inquiries toward Earth have been met with insistent denial. They have no record of anyone from Earth or any of their colonies ever visiting A29166. They insist they didn't even know what a mystery it was in some circles because, as one official put it, why would we care? Unfortunately, it is the humans of Earth who are best equipped to investigate A29166 but they are also strongly implicated as the players who kicked 829166 out of its technological somnolescence. Negotiations are ongoing, but as their role in galactic trade has increased, humans have given up the habit they once had of making very tiny explorational starships like the infamous grasshopper and horse pill. The humans have had to take a productive starship out of service for at least a week to make an expedition to the normal arm of the galaxy. And while other races now have starships that can land, those are all huge nanite-based designs that might be a bit threatening if they approach the surface of any world uninvited. Meanwhile, having gotten their dictionary, the natives of 829166 have been gradually extending their command of both the language and the transfer protocol in a way that makes it very believable that they really have built their own terminal from first principles. The thing nobody can figure out is, if they had been so stubbornly incommunicative since their first days out of quarantine... How did they know enough common to make their initial request? End article. As was our tradition, the human form curator had brought a welcome fifth of Johnny Walker Blue. 
Your people aren't coming yet, he said as we clinked shot glasses, but they will come. We are far from finished here, Em said, and I nodded. My people are in agreement. We do not want to see your work here stop, but you have seeded it well, and a little vacation might be a good idea while this introduction kerfuffle works itself out. The Prometheans just didn't realize what they were doing when they decided to say hello. So where should we vacate, Em asked. The safest place would be with the witnesses, since they know your secret anyway. That asshole Q who tried to destroy their world is also staying with them, she said as she spat on the ground. We had an idea about that, the curator said. You probably won't like it much, but please hear me out. It offers little risk, keeps you away from Q except for a few hours, and gives him a chance to prove he is not what you remember him to be. Em wasn't happy about it at all, but try as she might, she couldn't think of a valid reason to turn the proposal down. So a week later, we found ourselves on the plausible deniability with both the curator and Q traveling back from the witnesses' world to, the Promethe- to Prometheus. M was doing a slow burn, but she was carrying out the plan. I would have brought him myself, but I don't have an amplifier, the curator said apologetically. By the time the situation escalates to a point where such an item might be released, it could easily be too late to help. I appreciate the ride, Q said. Don't thank me. I'm just driving the jalopy, M said in a voice tripping with venom. Look, I can't change what I once was. Please consider at least the possibility that I have changed and consider how I might prove it to you. An heroic death would do nicely, M said. That's a distinct possibility, the curator said. Q is going to provide a cover story for you, and there is some risk to him in doing so. We will not be able to provide cover for him. Fine, we'll see, M said. I don't see how that could possibly work, I said. Me and my bros were just trashing around the galaxy. We got in an argument, and they dumped me on this dipshit world where I eventually named Prometheus, Q said, and an eerie return to his pre-enlightenment speech mannerisms. I haven't seen him since and don't know where the ship is now. Oh, the illegal ship with the full drive that was supposed to be destroyed. You guys might be real interested in who I used to work for. So here I was in this primitive dump where they figured I'd never be able to make my way back to the galaxy again. But turns out these Promethean dudes are pretty hip to tech that they're able to make themselves. So I gave them a little help. Pretty slick, I said. But the people who are after all of us might come for you. I know, maybe Em will get a heroic death before this is over. If so, I'm okay with that. This is pretty high profile on human worlds at the moment, the curator said. It would be quite risky for them to pull anything on the recon visit. And with this ship gone, we think it might be a bit difficult for them to justify another clandestine run to try and extract Q. If they haven't tried in a month or two, it will almost certainly indicate a lack of will. It's costing them a fair amount of revenue to sideline a ship for this visit and there is almost exactly zero profit for anybody to make by repeating it. And one thing Earth is all about is the money. Even our colonies think they're crazy now. You finished? Yeah, we should wake up and smell the nanites, Em said, finally finding something to complain about other than Q. An hour later, we had dropped Q off and were on our way back to the witnesses. Okay, Em said, now that she could breathe a little easier. What do you think the chances are of the stupid plan succeeding? Well, on the point of giving you cover so you can come back safely in a few months and continue your work here, we're pretty sure it will work. 
His presence will neatly explain what happened here, and there's no reason for anyone to come back once that explanation is in place until the Prometheans are in a position to trade on their own. That's unlikely to happen for at least 30 or 40 more years, even at their highly accelerated rate of development. So I guess Q will be vacationing with the witnesses for a while afterward? Not really. There are seven more unaccounted for full drives, and we're sure there must be other ships like this one. They will almost certainly send an extraction crew after him. Q is well-versed in how his former masters think. Q is himself well-trained, but his heart isn't into violence as it was when he was a highly effective commando. I consider his chances of surviving this less than 10%. Does he know this? M asked. His estimate is less than 5%. Yay for Q then, M said with a heavy sigh, and we made the rest of the trip back to the witnesses in silence. Part 40. Six months later, still Promethean Uplift Project Plus 34. Begin article for immediate release via microfold relay. Scope, Earth and Human Colonies, Section Humanity, Fuck Yeah. Origin, Norma, R1843, Creator Index 829166. Title, A Real-Life Robinson Crusoe Returns Home. Byline, Associated Colonial Press. This quiet world, a third of the way around the galactic wheel from Earth, became a subject of interest this year when, after 70,000 years of stubborn rejection of curated technology, the natives developed an independent link to the microfold network on their own. Here with the crew of the Trinity-class foldship Prospero's Books, we found the cause of this world's sudden technological uplift, a world that is no longer nameless. When I realized what I had to do, I started calling this place Prometheus, Q said. He is a relatively young man with a fondness for cultural references a bit beyond his apparent years and surprisingly fresh, earth-like attire. The Prometheans are great makers, he says. They have been really on the cusp of doing this for all these thousands of years. It just took a little push. I showed up with a couple of the keys they needed in my head, and they did the rest even quicker than we humans did. They just don't like the lack of control you accept when using nanites, since nobody except the curators really knows how nanites themselves work. But when I showed up here, I knew what was possible, because I knew humans had done it. As to how he ended up on the world he named, Q has a story that will set investigators running all over the galaxy. There were eight fold drives humans made that were capable of folding a planet into its star before we figured out how to lock that out. He told us, they were supposed to be destroyed despite their potential value after the legendary M and J witnessed such an event firsthand. But according to Q, would you really think something as valuable as a fold drive would just be melted down? And because they were being diverted illegally, the people who got them were not the best. Q will not talk about how he was recruited or the missions he ran before becoming marooned. We have a lot of freedom, he said. Being basically mercenaries, we were trashing around the galaxy, doing what we were told and called and otherwise doing whatever. One day, my buddies decided to visit this obscure world, which is off the quarantine list, but had no commerce with the rest of the galaxy. Next thing I know, my crew was left without me. In retrospect, I realized my first mate was almost certainly banging my girl. And in those days, I would have killed them both if I had found out. 
What do you mean in those days? One of our reporters asked. 20 years on an alien world will change your perspective, he said. Today, I just hope they're happy. And now they also have your fold ship. I suppose. I have no idea where it is, and I don't suppose it was ever really my fold ship anyway. The people who hired us probably considered it theirs. The investigation team is wrapping up its work here, where the Prometheans have already built anti-gravity air cars and may be making their old fold drives within a decade or two. When the report is complete, it will be made available to the galactic community. We still do not know the fate of Q's fold ship or the others he suspects were illegally made with the drives that were supposed to be scrapped, and more investigations have already begun on Earth following these accusations. The Prometheans have been sending, sending ACK to the microfold network for tens of thousands of years. One of our researchers reminded Q, why didn't you just get them to send a message for you? They had sabotaged the nanite transmitter they hated so much so that no more advanced communication was possible, he answered. My only hope was to get them to the point where they could call for help by some other means they would be willing to actually use. The team has talked extensively with the Prometheans who have verified every element of Q's story in detail. We will be leaving soon and closing a mystery that has perplexed the galaxy. End article. What? The actual fuck, M said after she scanned the printout. Is there a single truthful thing in this whole pile of horse shit? Not really, the human form curator said, and that's by design. The design of taking credit for all of our work. If you take credit for your work on Prometheus, the people who you think are after you will know where to find you. She closed her eyes. So do you believe they are really still after us? Probably so. And that would mean Q is taking a large risk. People who once employed him know many of those statements are lies too. But something has to explain to the galaxy how and why the Prometheans surged forward just when they did, almost in the footsteps of humans. You do not want to be that explanation yourselves right now. I think I'm done with this, M said. I don't see how I can keep going forward. This would be an odd time to give up, the curator said. And why is that? Now that the crisis is passing, the Prometheans are very eager to show you their first spaceship. Spaceship? How can they have a spaceship? They don't have a drive. They don't have a fold drive, but they do have supergravity as well as control and navigation systems that you've seen. They've built a small test ship to test their ideas on space-based systems and explore their solar system. It won't be capable of interstellar travel, but it should be able to reach any world in their solar system within a matter of days. What about life support? I understand they have a fairly advanced plan for that, but we hadn't really heard anything about work on life support systems, and he wouldn't give details when pressed. We had to wait for the Earth expedition to depart Prometheus anyway, and we're only mildly surprised that Q went with them. We gave it a couple more months to blow over before returning to Prometheus ourselves. By then, there was a general galactic consensus that the Prometheans should be left alone unless they asked for more company, and the human news agencies reported that the galactic Robinson Crusoe Q had decided to settle in one of the larger cities on the rustic human colony of Pretoria. 
Part 41. One year later, Promethean Uplift Project Plus 35. The Prometheans had created thousands of research facilities to drive their progress, ranging from little shops investigating radio techniques to sprawling complexes devoted to mass manufacturing electronic circuit plates. In the beginning, we had made an effort to visit all of them once in a while, but it became impossible. And some of them didn't want us to visit. They didn't want us to just give them human technology. They wanted enough hints to figure out how to do it themselves, but in a way that made sense to them so they could implement it on their own. The shipworks was one of those. We had known they were planning to build it, but we didn't know how they had actually got to the point of building a ship. As we approached the coordinates we were given and the, plaus the plausible deniability, we were puzzled to find the site dominated by a three-story tall spherical greenhouse. We were greeted warmly and M asked where the ship was. This resulted in some of the coughing fits we recognized as Promethean laughter. Surely you couldn't miss it on your approach, one of the techs said. It's the tallest structure here. The terrarium is your ship? One habit we've decided to adopt from your people is the naming of our spacecraft. This first one is called the Gift of Guidance. As a race that lives in small groups and values parenting and teaching, we have a neutral excuse for choosing such a name. But of course, it is your guidance we specifically celebrate. It was, indeed, a huge glass sphere with five glass landing fins and a boarding tube taking the place of what would have been a sixth. It had three decks, clearly visible, all also apparently made of glass. It's Cinderella's spaceship, I said brightly, and M gave me a nasty look. We showed you metalworking techniques, M said. Why in the world would you use glass for the hull? Our hull is 20 centimeters thick and tempered. We calculate that any projectile that could breach it would go through even your toughest metal hull ships like tissue paper. We boarded. The lowest level was engineering and navigation. This is where the computers were in a circle around the perimeter. Since it was near the bottom of the spherical hull, it was small with a two meter wide working area between the perimeter instrumentation and the spiral staircase in the center that gave access to the upper decks. We have three onboard 32-bit computers for redundancy and parallelism. Any of them can do any job, including control of the multiplex drive, the ranging radar, life support, and power distribution. How big is this thing? The hull is 12 meters in diameter. Lithium batteries and stores are below this engineering deck. There's a space about a meter and a half deep there. If you look straight up, you can see the multiplex drive in the center of the hull sphere. It's about a meter in diameter. So about 10 times the mass of your supergravity drive. Why do you call it a multiplex drive? It isn't just a supergravity drive. It has multiple functions. Since it was going to be fairly large no matter what, we decided that by adding just a bit more functionality, we could give it some other very useful functions without making it that much bigger. That's made some of our other systems simpler or even unnecessary. What else does it do? Well, it can selectively fold all wavelengths of photons. We can use it directly as a heater if we're in the outer solar system too far from the sun. And while it can't fold electrons since they have mass, it can fold photons to the center of a dense photovoltaic array and generate about 10 kilowatts of electricity for the artificial lighting and computers. And of course, to charge the batteries for when the drive is offline. We had wanted to use it for aerial illumination, but we realized we can only control the size of the aperture, not its transparency. So we have to keep it very small for safety when it's folded to the center of a star. 
we ascended the staircase, which was supported by six glass columns, about 10 centimeters in diameter, around a three-meter diameter core defined by the columns and the holes at the top of the two decks. The second deck was just below the equator of the sphere, and the staircase brought us to a pathway through the vegetation. The multiplex drive was supported by three stalks anchored to the columns opposite the stairway at that level. The main path on this level circumnavigates the hull and leads to sleeping hammocks. The illumination facilities are also located on this level, with the vegetation providing some privacy. We don't do a lot of complicated recycling on board. We depend on returning to a habitable world to restore the atmosphere and water systems to equilibrium. As she spoke, another Promethean approached from the thicket. Oh, they're here, he said. Sorry, but I was a bit busy with last-minute details. This is our ship's botanist, our guide said. You might prefer to think of him as our life support engineer. We gave you designs for life support systems, M said a bit plaintively. Yes, and they were very clever. Also very difficult. Exotic materials, toxic and caustic chemicals, high temperature processes, all stuff we hadn't been working on. But we have been farming for almost 100,000 years, and we know our biome well. The mechanical schemes required pressurized oxygen and resources to scrub carbon dioxide, which were either very complicated or used expensive consumables. And there are other things our biome does that your life support systems don't. We do use your methods for our EVA suits, but there we accept a lot of limitations. We tried this on Earth once, you know, Em said. It didn't work out too well. Of course, biosphere too, the botanist nodded. It lasted, what, about two months before they were accused of cheating? Something like that. Fortunately, we don't anticipate ever being sealed up for more than a week or two, and never even that long once we have the fold ship. Our design goal for this system is a crew of 10, three engineers and up to seven passengers for a tour long enough to visit every planet of our system. But the biome could support 60 for as much as a week in an emergency with bright sunlight for the biome. It can support the design crew indefinitely, at least for oxygen generation on the onboard artificial lighting. These plants do okay in variable lighting conditions? Oh, yes. We've been farming for a very long time and not with your industrial methods. We know our native biome very well. We ascended to the third level, which was open to the sky. Here, the navigation walkway follows the inside core guardrail instead of the perimeter. And we have a couple of observation and entertainment areas. This is where we do food preparation with an electrically powered kitchen and where we would normally gather to eat or have a meeting. This deck is 11 meters in diameter, but the hole gets quite close to the deck near the perimeter. It feels very solid, M said. Just how much does this thing weigh? The glass totals 200,000 kilograms. The biome, soil, biomass, and support features are another 120,000. All in all, the whole ship mass is about 400,000 kilograms. Of course, weight doesn't matter when you have a supergravity drive because every particle falls through the same acceleration gradient when you maneuver. How in the hell did you build it, I asked. For that, you have to go to the engineers. We're just the crew. But they took pictures. The Prometheans had only primitive black and white film photography, and they used it sparingly. But they had devoted a crewman to documenting the process of creating the gift of guidance as whole. They had lofted the glass into space as a solid blob four meters in diameter, then used the multiplex drive to melt it using the sunlight cannon method. You built a weapon, M asked. No, we built a furnace, which was your first intended use for the same device. 
Wearing EVA suits, we used the drive on an open platform space sled to get it high enough to take some time falling and then used compressed gas pumped in through a steel pipe to blow it into a sphere as your earth glass blowers do. Didn't take a terribly high pressure in the vacuum of space. It's remarkably uniform, M said. This was our fourth try. We let the others crash into the ocean, the guide said, as if this was the most natural thing in the world. This seems an awful lot of effort for something that can't leave your home system, M said, as we returned from the engineer's shop. But it's not stuck here, our guide said. We've been in contact via the microfold, and other races assure us that they could take us along as their larger ships transfer. It's actually normal for a non-landing orbit-only fold ship to generate a fold aperture much larger than its hull. Now that you mention it, if I needed to, I could even do that with the plausible deniability. We normally keep that ability locked up down, but I know how to enable it. And that brings us to our reason for finally inviting you here. You see, we have tested everything as much as we can. We've taken the ship into space and landed it multiple times, but it's our only ship, and if we've made any mistakes, we have no second chances once we are out of the solar system. We've never put it in orbit around Prometheus or taken it as far as the orbit of our moon. We would be grateful if you would accompany us in the plausible deniability on our first voyage just in case we need backup. We don't have an airlock or a docking ring, M said as I nodded. We know we plan to make this first trip in EVA suits. We're given to understand that you can evacuate the plausible a couple of times and recharge the atmosphere if necessary. We would only need this in some extreme, dire, unexpected circumstance. You do have a full drive, which we don't, and that could be much more useful than an airlock. M looked at me and I nodded. Of course we would do this. We would be honored. If you don't mind, I said, and I direct this at M too, she's the one you want in the plausible if there's an emergency. But I'd like to accompany you in the gift to see what it is actually like to ride in this thing. I think you've surpassed us at having the only ship of its kind in the whole galaxy. That would be excellent, Jay, the guide said. We would also like our first real voyage to be recorded, and human technology is much better for that than ours. I guess it's a good thing we lost the fur for now, M said. I don't follow, the guide asked. We rather liked your fur. Yes, but our EVA suit designers didn't design with it in mind. Behind our guide, one of the Promethean engineers erupted in a fit of coughing laughter. We can see that, she said with a wide grin. The problems our suit people had with our own fur were considerable. So if your suits were designed for you to be naked, it's probably best to wear them that way. Roger, monologue. Gotta pee. Okay. <laughs> I like I like the I like the glass prototypes falling into the sea. Just as if that was the most natural course of action. <laughs> and we just plummeted this thing from orbit into the ocean. As one does. Yeah. It's junk. <laughs> so uh all right, so the uh, next part will be forty two. Uh got a couple of more here. After today's reading, we will have another seven episodes, which will finish book one, uh, which we'll presumably do uh, next time I'm on Tommy's show. And that will actually take us halfway through the entire series. Even though there are three more books, uh, they total about the same length as book one, mainly because they don't have to lay so much groundwork. Uh, and each of them is thematically different 
uh, they uh, they shift different focuses. So uh, book one is getting ready to wrap up. This is our story of the humans, uh, us humans, figuring out kind of where we stand in the galaxy. Uh, not so much making a place as figuring out where we are. Uh, and as the series progresses, we will start to become a little more uh, active about making a place for ourselves but that's a story for the upcoming books i heard a thump a bump, a bump. <laughs> <sighs> okay as as you were so uh part 42 The aircraft was built when men were preparing to visit the moon, but hadn't made it there yet. For 65 years, it flew captains of industry and entrepreneurs to the meetings and work sites that would make the human world possible. For a few years, it flew a notorious pornographer, and a decade later, for a little while, it flew the leader of a popular fundamentalist church. Eventually, it was eclipsed by newer craft that were lighter, faster, more fuel efficient, and needed less maintenance. And one day, its owner decided that it wasn't worth the engine overhaul that was soon to be due. It was flown to Arizona to be wrapped in plastic and stored in the desert in case someone might one day need its fabulously expensive frame or parts. That was its last flight as an airplane. Three months later. Neither the gift of guidance nor the plausible deniability had a way to recover the air that would be lost to space when the door was opened for an EVA. Since the plausible had no airlock, it had to recharge from gas canisters, but even though its cabin was small, it could carry a lot of those. Emma had been sleeping on them for two weeks. The gift didn't have high-pressure gas cylinders because the Prometheans had no industry for making them, but it had the advantage of a separate airlock and a biome sphere that held a hell of a lot of air. Evacuating and recharging the airlock dropped the biome pressure by about 20 millibars. Still, on its first grand tour, we were conservative and used the lock as little as possible. We wore our EVA suits for the first few days, but when it became clear the ship was handling acceleration and inner system temperature gradients well, we started sleeping naked per the ship's intended design. There isn't much that can go wrong with a giant glass sphere other than something so catastrophic that you don't really have any way to deal with it. But we were testing the Promethean drive technology harder than it had ever been tested before. It had to power the ship and generate several different kinds of fold fields, sometimes simultaneously. The glass plate-based multiplex drive was prone to glow during maneuvers and at ship night when it was charging the batteries. Actual area illumination on the gift was by gas discharge tubes, what humans would usually call neon lamps, except that most of them were actually filled with carbon dioxide to provide whitish light. Humans had once actually tried the same technology at a few places in Europe before the Second World War, but incandescent and later fluorescent lamps proved more compact and easier to power. The Prometheans did use other gases, red neon for exits and emergency equipment, and lavender argon to outline working control panels. M remarked over the helmet comms that the gift looked remarkably like a Christmas ornament from a couple of kilometers distance. Space travel had finally given the Prometheans an appreciation for voice radio communication, though their techniques were still primitive by our standards. Our human EVA suit radios used frequencies and modulation techniques that were well beyond Promethean means, 
so M and I could only talk to one another when suited. But we did have a Promethean voice transceiver on the plausible, so we didn't have to use Morse code anymore. They had finally developed amplitude modulation for their own EVA suits and realized it just worked better in a space flight work environment, although Morse was still more reliable in noisier marginal situations. The aircraft was occasionally looted as it waited in the desert, almost immediately giving up its radar and engines, but later surrendering interior fittings, control linkages, and other parts that were no longer made for other still-functioning aircraft of its type. Then one day, humans found a use for pressurized tubes with windows that the aircraft's original makers had not anticipated. Engineers pored over old pencil and pen engineering drawings and declared it a potential candidate for their project. The wings and tail were removed, and the fuselage was driven 1,400 miles. In those days, in the United States, all travel distances were still reckoned in miles to a facility where other airplanes had already been made into humanity's first interstellar spaceships. The engineers cut the fuselage just past the aft internal pressure dome and just ahead of the bulkhead forward of the boarding door. They removed the landing gear and installed fixed stands with automatic leveling jacks, since in its new life it would not need to land at high speed and roll to a stop. The old landing gear bays became deployment bays for exterior instrumentation. The nose was replaced with the titanium-framed geodesic hemisphere of tempered glass plates. After the drives were installed, the protoship was flown at low altitude under its own power back to the desert, where it was pressure-cycled a dozen times to three times Earth's atmospheric pressure, and all the joints were then x-rayed. When it was demonstrated to the full drive makers, somebody loudly snorted, Looks like a suppository! When it was given to famous test pilot M and her companion Ambassador J to replace the increasingly obsolete grasshopper, J chose to name it Horse Pill, and it would wear that name until it was scrapped again on the occasion of their retirement. After a quick flyby of the barren Mercury-like world, we settled into orbit around the Promethean system's third world. Unlike Mars, it had the liquid water and wasn't frozen solid. What it lacked in the long term was a moon to stabilize its rotation, but it had geological activity, a thick atmosphere, and water, making it one of the more interesting candidates I've ever heard of for terraforming. It was tempting to land, but our mission was more to test the equipment than to explore, so after a couple of days in orbit, we moved on to the gas giants, which, like Sauls, had a rich assortment of worlds the Prometheans had only ever seen as fuzzy dots. After M and J retired, the horse pill was returned to the desert, its full drive transferred to a larger and more capable craft to aid Earth's diaspora to the colonies, and it languished for more decades. Then one day a transaction was conducted, and a flying transport picked up the inert hull and took it to a different place, where much of the equipment was makeshift. The fold drive hadn't exactly been stolen, as its owners considered themselves its legitimate owners, but it had been diverted from a promise that it would be destroyed so that it could not be spectacularly misused. They didn't do a lot of work on the old horse bill, although they did paint it black and give it a more impressively martial name. Then they mostly used it for covert black ops, which were absurdly easy since most of the galaxy had no concept of human security measures. And one day the order came through to bring back M and J, who were hiding on a world that had been identified through logs recorded by their original ship's drive. 
six astronomical units out from the Prometheus star, the multiplex drive turned out to be a wickedly effective space heater. With her instruments, Em reported that the gift really looked like a Christmas ornament in the infrared. Em shattered us in the plausible as the gift swooped and dove among the moons of a giant world. Since the Prometheans had crap for instruments, I did a lot of the data recording with my cell phone. It wasn't ideal, but these would be far better images than the Prometheans had ever gotten of their own system, despite its limitations. I had a feeling back on Prometheus, they might be taking more of an interest in imaging technology once we got back. The covert refitters of the old horse pill had not invested a lot of effort in engineering checks. They just wanted a craft into which they could plug their full drive and fly. And the fact that the craft had sat in the desert for several decades since its last mission did not interest them. The ship flew well, but it had never in all of its history as a spaceship stayed in space for more than four days at one time. As the Promethean system survey stretched into its fourth week, thermal cycles and continuous atmospheric pressure finally took their toll on a welded seam forward of the boarding hatch. M was EVA suited and strapped in in case there was a sudden emergency on the gift she might have to attend to, but she wasn't wearing her helmet. When the seam cracked and ripped loose, the split reached the line of rivets holding the forward geodesic observation hemisphere to the craft, and the force of over 50 tons of air pressure unzipped them in less than a third of a second. The hemisphere was blown off, and the blast of air leaving the ship blew everything that wasn't fastened down out through the front, including M's EVA helmet, which she wasn't wearing, because nobody expected an emergency on the plausible as they were doing their tests on the gift. She had about 15 seconds to appreciate what was happening before the vacuum took her consciousness. We can't raise M, the test master told me as we were doing another calibration cycle of their drive. Do you think she might be suited? No reason for that, I said. I was wearing my helmet since the possibility of the spear failing was still not completely discounted and some of the tests we were doing would stress it. I raised a comm link and saw a flash out of the corner of my eye. For practical reasons, our suits have strobes to let us locate each other when comms are active. The flash of light was far away from where I expected the plausible to be. Can we get a searchlight on the plausible, I asked. Easily, the test captain said over the intercom. The multiplex drive flashed and a bright beam of light arrowed out from the drive through the transparent hull toward the plausible. The beam wasn't visible in space, but the fainter cousin of our sunlight cannon lit up the plausible like inner system daylight, even though it was almost five kilometers away. It was clear that something was very wrong. Plausible deniability was surrounded by a cloud of debris and there was no glint of its faceted canopy hemisphere. We are on our way there, the test captain said before I could ask. Although we had been going a good fraction of the speed of light on our way to the gas giant, it took excruciating minutes to approach the plausible because it wouldn't have been good to smack it with the half million kilogram glass hammer by accident. When we got close, it became obvious that the canopy hemisphere was gone. Gift heeled around to orient its airlock toward the open forward end of the ship, and there we could clearly see M, her limp body strapped in and EVA suited but helmetless. Our condolences are inadequate, the shipmate by my side said when this became apparent. Get the airlock as close as possible, I yelled. We have work to do. As I climbed into the airlock, the test captain tapped me. Tell me your plan, he said. I have to find her helmet since it's got the only other radio transceiver in the system compatible with mine. Then I'll expand the fold aperture and bring you home. 
We won't be able to communicate once you leave since your radio is incompatible with ours and our compatible one on the plausible will be in vacuum. When you're ready, remove, maneuver to this quadrant, she indicated to the left of the airlock. Just get us within the orbit of our moon and we will do the rest. You have limited oxygen in that suit and probably no way to recharge, so you do what you must. M has told me many times without irony that the most dangerous thing you can do on a spaceship is leave it. The Prometheans got me within three meters of the open front of the plausible, but even that took half an hour of careful work because at close quarters, the supergravity drive interacts with the thing you're trying to dock with. When I jumped, it was with the understanding that if I missed, it would probably die and I would probably die in space. But in good company, I reasoned. I made the leap, crashing to the deck behind M's body as the gravity plating got me. All the plausible systems seemed to be working normally. I gave a thumbs-up signal to the crew of the gift, then hit the comlink button. Fortunately, the debris field wasn't too strung out yet, and I easily caught the flash of the helmet strobe. I unstrapped M's body, and not completely trusting the gravity plating to stay up, secured her to the back of the ship with bungee cords before taking the pilot's seat. It took about 20 minutes to chase the helmet down, mainly because of the supergravity drive interaction. I had to basically set the ship on course and let it run into the helmet on momentum. After a couple of tries, it crashed to the floor behind me, and I turned around. Now the tricky part was expanding the fold aperture to encompass the gift of guidance. This required bypassing several safety systems and specifying the new radius and arbitrary units that were related to several normally hidden calibration values. Fortunately, M had drilled me on this before our departure. And even though it required operating an alphanumeric keyboard and a fumble-fingered pressure suit, I got it done in less than an hour. Then I positioned myself near the airlock as we'd agreed and waited for the thumbs up from the crew of the gift before folding us to Prometheus. After making a stable orbit somewhat below what would have been geosynchronous for them, I hauled back to the ship works. The crew of the gift had no need for haste in their prototype ship, but I was on a limited oxygen budget. After I landed, the Prometheans poured out of the buildings of the ship works, carrying flowers and paper standards. We had been living with the Prometheans long enough that I knew their funerary rituals, and apparently the crew of the gift had gotten the message to them by radio as I was navigating in. A crowd quickly engulfed the ship, and when I opened the door and emerged with M's body in my arms, they opened a corridor for me. I had seen this ritual several times, although I had never been the bearer. Since they don't use cloth, they had covered a table with flowers and leaves. For the first time since the disaster, I allowed myself to really look at her and nearly collapsed in grief. The Prometheans converged to comfort and assist me. We went back outside to observe preparations. There would be a feast and celebration in her honor. News was being relayed around the world by Morse code. I went back to the crippled ship and fetched her helmet, which I placed on the table next to her. It would need to be stripped of its radio before we buried her with it, but it belonged to her. I took my EVA suit off and put it in its storage hangar aboard the plausible. A couple of Prometheans asked what I was going to do with what was left of the ship, and all I could do was shrug. A Promethean funeral is what they call a proper mourning ritual, and part of that is to surrender to the alcohol and the flow of grief and allow yourself to see death from your own window of life, knowing you will eventually follow. Except that M and I hadn't really expected to go down that path quite so soon. The witnesses had... There was a collective gasp, and someone grabbed me and hauled me up to the path. 
M was standing outside the makeshift mortuary, holding her EVA helmet and looking around. Can someone tell me what the hell is going on? She shouted in English. You were dead, one of the Prometheans said in an accented but clear English. Oh, that, she said. Is Jay here? I was quickly hauled up to the front of the crowd. Honey, the witnesses have been spacefaring since our sun wasn't even a cloud of gas. Don't you remember they mentioned something about surviving the absence of oxygen? I had, in fact, completely forgotten that, but I would never forget it again. <laughs> and part 43. After M's funeral turned into a celebration of her survival and ran its course, the shipworks people brought us home by air car. We left what was left of the plausible at the shipworks. We could have flown at home at low altitude ourselves, but I could see that M was not in the mood for anything like that. Six days later, we found our old friend, the human form curator, waiting for us when we returned home from dinner. He was bearing his usual gift, stupidly expensive earth liquor, this time a fifth of Shibis royal salute. The good 38-year stuff, not the 21-year stuff mere mortals can afford if they skip a paycheck. M fetched his shot glasses, and we clinked them. I came as soon as I heard, he said. And how did you hear? M asked. We walk among all of our children, even these, but here our operatives keep a low profile. We are all very sorry about your ship and glad your vacuum defenses worked as the witnesses intended. If you need anything, know that I have been assigned an amplifier belt to assist you until the Promethean project is concluded. An amplifier? For us? M said incredulously. This world has been a long-standing thorn in our side, one which the two of you have very nearly now pulled. It has been a long time since the curators have owed a debt such as we owe you to. Seems like it's done, M said morosely. Nothing left to do but wait anyway. If we could go home without getting hunted down and dissected, I'd already be ready to leave. But then you admit it's the best part, the curator said. And what part is that? M countered. The part where your children fly, he said, with a sense of gravity. Of all the things we can ever experience, this is the thing we long for the most and which we remember most fondly. Very few of us have the privilege of guiding a world through the critical path, and far fewer can claim to have done so as an individual effort. My people will tell your tale for aeons. Yay us, M said. She hasn't been herself since the near-death experience, I said. It shouldn't have had any negative effects. The witnesses' methods are a little different than ours, but they've been on a solid footing for aeons, we know, M said. If your plan is to try to live for hundreds of thousands of years, it's a bit of a problem if the most common environmental condition in the universe can kill you in a couple of minutes. How are your methods different, I asked, trying to move to something resembling a topic. Curator vacuum defenses concentrate on maintaining consciousness. After an explosive decompression, I can stay conscious for five or six minutes. This requires specialized energy storage organelles throughout the brain, and we forego some of the witnesses' techniques to optimize for this. The reason is, of course, that I can fold myself to safety if I remain alert. My window of consciousness gives me enough time to scan and locate a place of safety from almost anywhere in the galaxy. But if I fail to save myself that way, my long-term prospects, once I lose consciousness, aren't very good. I would start to sustain serious damage within an hour and probably die within three 
The witnesses take a different approach since they know they depend on being rescued by others who will have to reach you in a ship. So your bodies move aggressively to preserve your brain and organs as soon as the pressure drop is detected. It actually helps that you lose consciousness quickly so preservative measures can be brought to bear. One reason it took him a while to revive once he returned her here is that the protective chemicals and mucus barriers had to be reabsorbed before her body could resume a normal metabolism. Depending on other conditions, you should be able to self-revive after five or six hours in vacuum and to be revived with proper medical help after as much as a couple of days. What about the cold? I asked, not really understanding the process very well myself. Vacuum isn't hot or cold, Em said. You start cooling down by black body radiation, but it takes hours, and I guess we make antifreeze if it goes too far? That's right, our curator said. So why is she so depressed, I asked him. Maybe it's the giant plate of crow I have to eat now, Em said as she sat up a bit. We just looked at her. I didn't know about the survival package, and I remember what I felt as I watched the dome blow away. I had enough time to be glad I wouldn't have to face up to how wrong I'd been. Dying was preferable to have to endure the embarrassment of being so wrong before so many people who had trusted me so much. She sighed. Then I fucking woke up. I don't understand, the curator said. I think I do, I said. She's been ragging on them for years about settling for tech that is far more primitive than what we really offered them. The biome for life support, the glass hole, the glass plate drive tech that will never be quite as good as our silicon wafers. She thinks they've settled for an easy but soft path. And I was wrong, Em said heavily, wrong about everything. If I had any tendency to believe in God, I'd see the plausibles blow out as a rebuke for my arrogance. It's somehow even worse. I know it was just my own stupidity paying off. I think you're being a bit harsh on yourself, the curator said gently. If we've done so well, if we've earned the praise of future aeons, have you stopped to ask yourselves just what it is about the Prometheans that made your methods fail and ours succeed? We wonder that every day. They own everything they do, I said. For good or ill, they take responsibility. This makes them very serious about the provenance of all the tools and materials and techniques they use. For them, failure is tragedy and worth any cost to avoid. The Prometheans have a sharp sense of humor, but we have lived here for over 30 of our years, and I have never seen a Promethean laugh at another's failure. They would not understand what humans call physical comedy, or for that matter, most of our comedy at all. You give them nanites, M said, becoming a little more animated, and they ask, how do these things work? And your answer is, pound sand, just take them. The Promethean asks, how do these things fail? And your answer is, don't worry, they don't, just trust us. But the Prometheans don't just give away their trust. You have to earn it by showing performance and reliability. You know they had a much more sophisticated technology than anyone realized when we arrived. You pride yourselves on how the Danites make a post-scarcity society possible, but the Prometheans had achieved that on their own, all through methods of agriculture and handicraft and social organization that they fully understood. What you offered to them to move beyond that began with an uncertainty of dependence that they hated. But how can an agrarian existence begin to compare with what we showed them was possible? Promethean society was much more advanced than anyone realized when we arrived here. It looked primitive, but they're keen observers and they do make modifications to their environment to suit their purposes. They're just very careful about it. 
I just spent a few weeks on a ship with a Promethean biologist. And when they say they understand their biome very well, they're not kidding. They're selective about where they try to live and what they try to achieve. They haven't kicked their ecosystem the way we did on Earth, and so it remains relatively stable and very productive. They've practiced agriculture in a way that preserves biodiversity. And while antibiotics were a miracle for them, they already had many medicines, some very effective, which they harvested from plants and animals. Their response when something goes wrong, like a drought or a famine, is to move en masse, and the entire population pitches in to help the refugees resettle. Then if they were so comfortable, how did you get them to progress? We showed up in a ship that was obviously the product of human craft and told them that we had gone from their level to making such things without mystery gifts. So we knew that it could be done. We made sure that each advance brought them something that they could both use and fully understand. They trusted us because we promised them that they would be able to make everything we gave them on their own and that each step we followed through on that. They just saw the nanites as an instrument of control, M said. You had been giving them true knowledge for millennia, which was a big reason their society could work so well. Then one day you show up with magic Lego bricks and no explanation of how they work or how they were made. Well, I suppose that's fair, the curator said, since the nanites were meant as an instrument of control. Nice of you to admit that, M said evenly. We always meant for our children to progress beyond using our nanites, but at a rate we could control. I guess we made them too well because nobody ever went beyond them until you came along. We didn't go beyond them, Mem said. You didn't let us know they existed, so we went past them. Perhaps you should have done that elsewhere sooner, he said a bit contritely. He poured us another round of stupidly expensive shots. It appears we have our own plate of crow to feast on. I still don't understand yours, though, Em. Glass doesn't work hard, and she said. You can inspect the, tresses, the stresses within it with a couple of polarizing filters and ordinary light. They read what we brought them about metallurgy, and they came to the conclusion that even we didn't understand it, the standards they would accept. And they were right. We use metal because it's light and strong, but when you have supergravity in the fold, it doesn't need to be lightweight because the whole thing accelerates evenly, no matter how massive it is. I spent so long flying airplanes that I couldn't wrap my head around that, even when they were trying to tell me. They built the most beautiful spaceship I have ever seen, and I told them they were fools. And she sobbed. You have nothing to be ashamed of, the curator said very positively. And how would you know? If they have shown you an error of your ways, you and Jay have shown us an error of ours that we have been stuck with for 70,000 Promethean years. I'm sure even the Prometheans with their formidable circumspection have made mistakes too. We had to rescue an air car which was out of control when one of their early pressure suit experiments went wrong, I said. M nodded. And how did they deal with it? They had a nice ceremony for the poor fellow who died, and they redesigned the suit and their procedures to try and prevent it from happening again. Just as we curators are learning and thinking about how we will approach our critical path children in the future, as well as the changes humans are making in the galactic economy now that supergravity and small fold drives are becoming more common. Regret your wrongness, certainly, and definitely learn from it. But unless you're wrong, this has affected trillions of people on millions of world. Know that someone has been more wrong than you and for a much longer time. Em laughed for the first time since I'd rescued her. I guess that's something, she sniffled. I would bet that even the Prometheans would say that wrongness itself isn't the sin. 
It is failure to learn from your wrongness that is. Learn from your mistake and move on. And know that you have been instrumental in correcting a much larger wrong on our part, which we must move past too. He emptied the bottle into our shot glasses and then said, Someone is approaching. I'll go for now, but I won't be far as long as this project is ongoing. When the knock on the door came, it turned out to be the director of the shipworks. I hope I'm not intruding, he said, but we've been busy and we have a proposal for you. We invited him in. He spread out a small poster filled with Promethean engineering drawings of a spherical ship. I hope you don't mind that we've taken the liberty of doing some measurements on your ship and its systems, he said. We were hoping to get you spaceborne again. I don't think I could ever trust it again, Em said. You were right about glass, and I was so very wrong about metal in the long term. Well, we looked into the possibility of replacing the observation dome, but yes, we were very uncomfortable with making a junction and wondering about the rest of the metal hull. So our engineers came up with this. We think we can make you a new ship in our style, about six meters in diameter, and install all of the drives, controls, and instrumentation from the plausible in it to make it fully functional. No biome ecosystem, Em asked. You don't have a bioengineer to keep it running, the director said, and you seem to be comfortable with the functioning of your mechanical life support system. This is extraordinarily generous, Em said. Not really. Our full drive won't be ready for a few more years, so at Shipworks, we have some breathing room. It would be educational for us to work on a project like this using more of your technology. And you've spent decades with us making our ship possible, so rebuilding yours is a tiny return for what you've done for us. Em and I made eye contact, and for the first time since the disaster, she smiled. Then by all means, go for it, she said, and I just nodded. And that is where I had planned to leave it for today. That was part 43. We will resume with part 44 next time and finish with part 50 the end of book one that was an emotional roller coaster i was i was a little i was i think i was more upset that she lived because i had already accepted she did she was dead and i was like don't don't fucking pull me back into this there's a finality to tragedy that you almost don't want it to be reversed yeah well that was a subject of uh of unusually long comment thread after the post on Reddit. Um, but, uh, yeah. But I, but at least I didn't make them wait until the next week to yeah. find out that she had survived. Yeah. I did that all in one episode. <laughs> yeah. No, I liked it. I liked it. I definitely wasn't expecting it. It's, yeah, it, it, it's... Yeah, I mean, I wasn't expecting she was going to die because part of me was like, they're so advanced. So I guess it kind of, I guess it, I guess it kind of does close any like loop plot hole you might feel there was. Like, you know, they're so advanced. How would they die? Yeah, I mean, the way you worded it, the single most abundant environment in the universe is a vacuum. You know, a, a gaseous planet is the exception, not the norm. That, yeah, I guess it makes sense. Um, yeah, um, yeah. I don't know how I feel about it. And while I didn't realize that was I was doing it at this point, uh, it turns out there will be uh, a uh, an arc in book two where the difference between curator and witness vacuum protection techniques will become a critical plot point. 
and I won't say anything more about that. Okay, fair enough. Not sure if I can forgive you. That was that was a ro- <laughs> that was a roller coaster that I wasn't entirely ready for, and I, I feel like I was ambushed. I feel like this is ambush journalism in some weird perverted definition. That's called pulling a really fat rabbit out of your hat when you're an author. Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you, Roger. I like it, man. I like it, but I mean, I like the, I like the kind of the meta theme of again seeing what happens when you're not gifted these technologies from the get go. You have to come up with your own novel ways, and often when you do it that way, you you learn about you learn about kind of methods and procedures on a more on a more granular level that you otherwise you otherwise wouldn't like i think i've said this to you when i play video games i don't ever watch the and i guess that's the zombie game i started playing on like thursday it's called um it's called state of decay and there's just i haven't even played like the real game there's just like a zombie survival kind of mode where you're in like a parking lot you have like artificial barriers and you're just kind of like fighting off zombies and Never once watching like a tutorial, not knowing anything about the game, not watching YouTube and like forcing myself to like, don't look up, don't look up the game, don't look up hints, don't look up anything. It's very like very frustrating and disappointing because you can't get past like the first level. But then when you finally do figure it out, now I can breeze through the whole thing and just and beat it like, like, like mechanically beat it. And now I'll go up and look up like game walkthroughs and I'll be like, Oh, no one's doing any of like the tactics I came up with. And it's but it's because when you're not gifted when you're not given a a strategy or like a guidebook, you have to pioneer unorthodox, but ultimately like natural selection, you find like the sharpest way to do it. And yeah, no, I I I love that recurring theme. I guess because I I see it so many times in my own life. Yeah. Uh, the well, the idea, of course, the whole Reddit is humanity. Fuck yeah! It's yeah. about the supremacy of humans and human ways of doing things. And I wanted the Prometheans to be kind of an intermediate thing between the rest of the galaxy being the inferior, not humans who are not doing it because well, they were given everything, so they're they're still like children in that regard, and the Prometheans showing a different way that. Uh, somebody like us might have come about and also us sort of being the parents yeah. that made them uh, a galactic species. They will be back too. Um, yeah, no, so I'm, mine's just turning, just kind of thinking about it. I mean, I guess you could almost argue that that would be one way you could say that it, it's not it it's not a bug it's a feature would be to not give some populations these tools and in turn now now you're sort of outsourcing the work of fine honing your own advanced nanites by seeing how can someone else break through in that sense it's a pleasant surprise but it's also it's also kind of a brilliant form of outsourcing mm-hmm. yeah the uh i, I mean it's the their curator friend admits that, well, yeah, the Ninites can't, the Ninites can't were meant as an instrument of control so that yeah. uh, children wouldn't get out of hand. And, uh, well, maybe we made them too well, uh, which is a thing that you see in some human communities, too. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, which with the way that we raise our own children. And uh, there is a, that this is a very large arc in the underground history of American education um, about the way schools are designed, which the basic design of Western schools was lifted from Prussia where they were explicitly designed to keep the lower classes stupid so that they wouldn't be able to overrun the government and the upper classes. And uh, people from our hemisphere visited this and went, wow, what a great idea. We need to do this. (laughs) So uh, the curators have kind of made a similar mistake, or maybe it wasn't a mistake, or maybe it was not a mistake in the day, but it's become a mistake because they did it too well. Um, I would say that we've done the lesson from Prussia a little too well in schools ourselves. <laughs> America has that, uh, American has that old, uh, we got that problem with going to terrible places in the world and being like, brilliant, let's <laughs> bring yeah. it home. The Nazis did oh. what? All right. Yeah, sure. Bring them back. And I was like, wait, no, no, we're supposed to kill them. No, we'll kill look them. How many, look, look how many ways the lesson we learned from World War II was, damn, those guys almost win. We need one. We need to be more like let's them. Let's tap it. Yeah. It wasn't just let's demolish it. It was let's tap the, what'd you guys do in unit 731? That's terrible. Here, we'll change your name and give you a visa. Yeah. Come, come show us how to do it. That better. Who knows? That might be the most, that might be the sort of survival of the fittest. Maybe that's what you know you have to do is you find the you find the, the the high command of whatever enemy almost beats you and you cannibalize it i'm not saying it's right i'm not defending yeah. it i'm just maybe that's not the course of evolution that's what you do well and the, there have been uh civilizations that sort of took that uh, thing instead of conquering their conquered peoples they put, uh, pulled them in it's like the egyptians adopting the religions of their con- the people they conquered into their own pantheon. So it's like, no, you aren't, you know, outsiders. It's like your, your, your gods are really cool. They'll make a great addition to our pantheon and they can schmooze with our gods and everybody's cool with it. Uh, you know, of course they didn't have technology at the time, the way that we do now, but uh, you know, at the same time, it's like we took sound recording and stuff like that, that the uh, Nazis had developed and, proceeded to make use of it. Jet engines, of course, rockets. You know, uh, we, did, we didn't go, well, this is Nazi tech, uh, which if you think about it, think of the contrast with the Nazis, you know, themselves uh, rejecting certain technologies because, well, that's, this is Jewish science. Yeah. And they, and they screwed themselves that way. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was actually a good lesson that we learned from it, which was don't do that. You know, it's like just because you hate these people and you had a big war, uh, don't dismiss their creativity and their accomplishments because this is stuff that you can make use of too, yeah. um, which was really also a lesson that we learned from our own civil war. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, the, not, the Nazi and Japanese use of, of racial superiority Real, maybe effective at whipping your populace into a fervor, but on the grand scheme of like conquer, no, it provides a lot of blind spots because you go, oh, this is from an inferior versus at, at the risk of trying to justify like Operation Paperclip. There's almost something, there's almost something more lethal about uh, just dropping all preconceived notions of superiority and racial disparaging and just go, does the technology work? It's, it's yeah. sort of a, 
drop everything and just follow the technology. We also had the advantage of not considering the Germans racially inferior. Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't a stretch for us to look at their technology and go, damn, these guys are good. Yeah. Uh, the Japanese had a big problem yeah. with that. Uh, the Germans themselves had a big problem with that uh, with regard to other things. They had, uh, they had a grudging admiration for us. They, they, their attitude toward Americans was that we had mongrel strength. Like they were purebred, uh, you know, super dogs themselves, but that we were like mutts and that we had strength because of that, but that we could never quite be on their level. And of course, we had all these natural resources that we were exploiting, which filled the gap, you know. And yeah. So they had this whole mythos about that. But they didn't really uh, have the ability to say, well, these guys are doing it better than we are. They honestly thought that they were better at everything. Yeah. And they were honestly astonished whenever anyone proved otherwise. Did, uh, did I ever tell you about the local restaurant that we have, Nuvolari's? Uh, so we have a restaurant in Mandeville, Louisiana named Nuvolari's. It's one of the oldest restaurants in Mandeville. It's, it's a very nice, classy place. But no one knows why it's named that. Well, they have a story on the back of their menu. Antonio Nuvolari was an Italian race car driver. And there was a Grand Prix. And the Germans showed up with five or six drivers in the best German-engineered cars, everything state-of-the-art. And they were completely confident that they were going to take this thing. And Nuvolari shows up in a demonstrably obsolete not even new Italian race car. And through simple, just daring and incredibly good driving ended up winning the Grand Prix and smoking the Nazis. And that was the, you know, one of those things. It was like the Olympics with the Jesse Owens, Jesse Owens and all. Uh, that was one of the points where the, the Nazis got their racial preconceptions handed to them on a platter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and we didn't really have that problem with the Germans. Uh, and so, and the Germans really did have better technology. They had a fetish for it and we had no problem going in over there and saying, okay, yeah, these guys are rocket scientists. They, they, they're smarter. We need to learn what they know and not getting caught up in, well, they're inferior. How could they possibly have done something better They're You know, uh, but all of these other guys who were wrapped up in World War II, even some of the allies had this problem of not being able to accept that the enemy was human and potentially on the same level as you. Of course, the Japanese, uh, you know, they, they, they had the whole thing. And the, yes, the so thing with the Japanese is, of course, their technology was a sad joke compared to everybody else's. Yeah. But well, except maybe the Chinese in that era. Um, but so everybody was looking at it through this lens of racialism and everywhere they looked at it through the lens of racialism, it was stupid. It was a mistake. And, you know, they ended up screwing themselves, including the Germans, because that's why they never had an atomic program. Uh, I mean, if they hadn't 
uh, fucked up Operation Barbarossa and chased all of their uh, Jewish scientists over to our side of the Atlantic, uh, they could have very seriously had their own Manhattan Project, very possibly. You know, they, then they would have had the resources uh, and the know-how and probably the will, which, you know, uh, they, uh, that, that's an interesting dynamic there. And there's a little of that in this segment of the curators too, because the, uh, the Prometheans distrust everything except what they can thoroughly understand themselves. And so, you know, the curators have been giving them all the usual gifts, the writing and the fire and all that stuff to advance their civilization up to the point where they showed up with the nanites. And then the Prometheans are like, well, what are these things? And they said, well, no, don't worry about it. And uh, obviously, you know, it's mentioned in an earlier episode I read uh, last time that they had a major philosopher who was, you know, one of their great philosophers who said, this is bullshit. You know, these, these are, these are not something that we have any understanding of or control over. You know, yes, they sit up and dance for us, but for how long? And we don't want this. We, you know, unless you want to tell us how they were made and how they work, this is not something we want. We know how our plants work. We know how our, ecosystem works we know how the other stuff the how to make fire all this we know these from basic principles but these things are just magic and you haven't explained to us why we can trust them if you decide to take them from us and of course it's been demonstrated much earlier in the story that if the curators want to they can take them from you they are backdoor yeah so (laughs) the prometheans are actually right about that the civilians found that out the hard way Will William Arkin, <clears throat> former Army Intel officer who I've had on this podcast a couple times, in his book "The Generals Have No Clothes," is it? It actually puts forward a fantastic argument that the U.S. military, for all intents and purposes, is actually like is actually like two times larger than it is, mm-hmm. and it's because we provide all of our allies with like radar systems, missile systems, aircraft, tanks. And then they buy all the spare pieces, and but a lot of the stuff only works or works most most lethally when in network with with the U.S. Yes. And the network is the thing we don't give away. So, like, although we may be, and I'll just use random numbers. Let's say the U.S. military has a thousand jets, a thousand tanks, and a thousand boats. Although it's already, we know that you know ours is bigger than the rest of the world combined. Effectively it's actually like 2000 because sure it's like the british have but they use the f35 and like so do the french and yeah they have everything but they don't have and the real goodies no. the f22 as long as they say our friends then they have it but if they try to use it against us they're going to find that it's not nearly as effective well we also don't give away the f22 and the b2 and the b1b we keep the real goodies for us but it's also i would venture to say that i'm sure those all have very convenient back doors i guarantee you if if someone ever turned against us wow what a weird thing all your f-35s just keep crashing i mean to think that we wouldn't do that is just giving us too much credit that's exactly what we would do america for all of its good and its bad is the most evolved empire 
and whatever replaces us will be the most evolved. But we are the most evolved empire from learning to take the top Nazis or top Japanese to whatever, to mm-hmm. learning misinformation, to learning just controlling the, the shipping lanes of the world. We are the most lethal empire, for better or worse, just purely from a strategic standpoint, even from the whole, hey, drop the, you know, you sort of drop your own ego and, you know, the Nazis okay, the Americans are less, you know, they're inferior to us, but they just lucked out because they had more natural resources versus like, no, don't come up with any excuses. And it's like that German tank commander who said one Nazi tank can take on four American tanks. Well, how did the Americans win? Well, they always had five. And it's, we just took that mongrel sort of (laughs) retard force and we were like, okay, maybe the Nazis are, who knows? Maybe they are, fuck it, we'll just build more. Who cares? You know, the Japanese are fervor. All right, well, we'll just open the sun on their cities like there is something that's almost comes from just drop the ego i don't care who's inferior who's superior just demolish the enemy however that must be done and that is that is a form of superior uh strategy until of course at some point in history when that is replaced and it will be as every Mm -hmm. empire before us as much as i love this place we are another empire and to think that we aren't going on the same trajectory as every other empire would be faulty. That would be yeah. a fault. That would be a superiority complex yeah. fault. History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Yeah, exactly. It's so, who knows? But on that note, Roger, let's wrap this up because I got to piss and I got to go to Walmart because I'm an idiot and leave my grocery. I wait until I don't have any food to go get food, which is just makes, there's no logic to it. So... When I keep kicking back grocery shopping, it finally gets to a point where it's like, well, I don't have any calories to ingest. And now I have to go. It doesn't matter if I'm tired and it's cold. I now have to go. Even even the Doritos are gone. When everything's gone, there is one thing and one thing that will remain. And it is the 700-pound steel safe. But that does not provide calories. It will survive. It will survive all else. Except I need to go get food. So with that... Roger, let's wrap this bitch up. We will resume on Sunday. And, uh, yeah, everyone go grab the book, Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect, and uh, look forward to the next readings. See ya. All right, Roger. Take care, buddy. Stay safe, everybody. God bless. Be good to each other. Peace.